All right. Hello, everyone from Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network. This is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writer saving music journalism from death by clickbait. And today I am joined by Joshua Mawadara and Tyler Jones. Um, y'all want to introduce yourselves and then I'll do my little intro. Joshua, you want to go first? Sure. Hey guys, I'm Joshua. I'm in New York and my most recent thing I'm working on right now is a piece about South Asians and hip hop and South Asian samples in hip hop. So pretty excited about that. Hi, I'm Tyler Jones. I am, you can usually find me on the discovery section of Central Sauce doing uh, why we like it currently working on a play uh, on a streaming article that will hopefully be done soon um and i also curate the uh one of our, our season sauce playlists for central sauce work and again i'm mickey hellerback um as far as promotional stuff well i'm a writer for central sauce and plus a few other publications like notion magazine and euphoria magazine um as far as promoting stuff i want to promote my uh digital cover story on uk rapper um ocean wisdom that went up semi-recently uh who our our uh podcast editor charlie is the biggest fan of that i've ever met for sure um, and, uh, it's a really cool conversation. Um, he, he dropped in within our transcription, um, a bar that kind of gave me the title for the piece that I thought was really cool. Um, he, which is ocean wisdom reads the room of the world. Um, just as like a little sneak peek of what it's about. Um, but it's about his upcoming album, which doesn't drop for a couple months. Um, but it gives a little cool sneak peek into that and to who he is as a rapper in person. Um, yeah, so before we get into what we've been listening to, I just wanted to give a, a kind of just a quick rundown of the title of the pieces we'll be discussing today and their authors um, or the journalists who wrote them. I don't think I've said authors before on this show, but yeah, they're authors. Um, they're authors. So the first, yeah, so the first piece is my piece that I brought. It's uh, Mustafa's Meditative Songs of Mourning by Rawaya Kamir for Pitchfork. Um, and uh, yeah, that is Mustafa or Mustafa the poet, the um, folk uh, artist from Toronto. Uh, the second piece is Van Jess perfected their own R&B sound on the homegrown EP um, by Shri Rain Stewart, and that goes for OK Player. Um, and then the third, and that was that one is brought by Tyler. And then the third piece, I realized I didn't write down the publication, so Jeshima, you'll have to finish this for me. Um, the third piece is Quest Love Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised on Earth's Crowning Jewel in Black History by Aramide Tanubu. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And Jeshima, what is the publication it's on, on that? It's on Essence. On Essence. Beautiful. Um, so yeah, those are the three pieces we'll be talking about, but before we get into that, uh, let's do a little quick round of what we've been listening to since we started with Joshua for the intros. Tyler, do you want to start with what you've been listening to? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I, as most of you know, I make a lot of playlists often, so I've just been on a this little discovery kick of like R&B artists and compiling them, um, compiling them into like different moods that I really enjoy. Um, one artist is well excuse me one song is overdue and i found him through tiktok oddly enough and the artist's name is uh o- ogk and it, it's like i don't know how to actually pronounce that I, I'm, that's the best i can do right now and i've also been listening to van jess's project that we will probably we will get into later and everything else has been scattered a lot of brent Fiaz. Yeah. Especially that new single that he has with Tyler. Mm-hmm. That is so gravity is my joint. It will it will shouts, probably be shouts DJ Dahi on the production for that one. That was really fire. It's brilliant. And Steve Lacey on the guitar. Um it, it's it's absolutely brilliant. Um and of course Giveon. Giveon is still in my playlist in every single way. So we've talked about TikTok and kind of how it relates to everything on the podcast before, but Tyler, I think we can, it's safe to say is actually our most proactive TikTok user at Central Sauce. Um, (laughs) So shouts to Tyler for actually being up to date on that app while the rest of us are not using it at all or barely using it, even though we talk about it on the pod. Maybe our Um, next thing will be Tyler doing TikToks, exploring our season sauce playlist. Yeah, but there's actually a lot of music TikTokers like that actually do music discovery through TikTok. It's really yeah, cool. Yeah, man, actually. those label deals looking type nice right now. Yeah. 
Okay, influencers about to make mad bread in houses in LA promoting music. Let's please Jeez. do that. <laughs> facts. Joshua, what have you been listening to? Ooh, gosh, a lot of different things. I've been listening to a lot of Groove Theory, which is some good old classic R&B feeling. Um, and then Humble the Poet recently released a new song, two songs, called Chippin' In and Love Won't Pay the Rent, but I'm quite enjoying Love Won't Pay the Rent. And then Axel Mansoor made a song with Abby the Nomad called Kids Can Be So Stupid. And I've been all up in that EP and then some. So, yeah. good time. We're definitely... Yeah, facts. We're big fans of Ubby the Nomad, first and foremost, at Central Sauce. Um, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, but Axel uh, was on, I'm not going to remember the name of that show, but the Axel. songwriting show that I believe is on Fox. Again, I'm not sure about I that I think either, it's called, but, I, I might be wrong, I think it's called Songland. Right, Songland. I think that's definitely right. But uh, I watched like four or five episodes of that, and he wrote a song for the artist Her, who just performed at the Super Bowl, and Her actual made... Uh, her performance of was it she sang America the Beautiful or yep, something else? America the Beautiful. Yeah. Which uh was definitely the best performance of that song, which I'm not very it a huge fan of, but she made also that shit the sound best fire. of the show. <laughs> okay, well <laughs> Don't come for I'm, me, bye. I'm gonna hey, uh I'm gonna wholeheartedly agree but say I don't want any of the smoke. <laughs> um, Do not come but for fast. us. <laughs> um yeah but that shit i mean yeah big big shout out to her for that performance it's unbelievable but anyway so axel um his song that he wrote for her on songland um of the four or five episodes of that show that i watched was my favorite and i couldn't believe that her didn't pick that song because it had just it was called scary i still remember it and it had to me the most kind of captivating hook uh lyric and melody that i heard for the entirety of those shows that i watched so that song's really dope everyone should check it out um what I definitely like to highlight is the thing that I've been listening to more than anything else, along with my kind of music discovery. Um, the thing that I've really been going back to wholeheartedly is the Arlo Parks album, uh, which is Collapsed in Sunbeams. Um, that uh, is definitely going to be a contender for my favorite album this year. I can, It's pretty... Ins- actually, wasn't instantaneous for me. The first time I listened to it, um, I was like iffy about it, but I made sure I wanted to, like, I knew I wanted to go back to it for some reason. And then the second time through, which the most recent album I can remember that happening with was actually, um, swimming by Mac Miller. Um, but the second time I went through it, I was like, Oh no, this is the one. Um, the song Caroline on it is probably also my favorite song of 2021 so far too. Um, it's about, if you haven't heard it, uh, a couple fighting outside a coffee shop and the just kind of specific imagery and the kind of cheeky humor involved with it is, um, I don't know. It's just really amazing. I feel like she she really understands how to uh, capture the essence of the kind of, you know, mundane of humanity in a really interesting way. Um, but yeah, so definitely listen to Collapse and Sunbeams if you haven't. Um, but yeah, so let's uh, let's get right into the, the main thing here. And um, I'm starting today, so I'll just go right into it. Um, again, so we, uh, I'm going to start with Mustafa's Meditative Songs of Mourning by uh, Rawaya Kamir, um, and that was, again, written for Pitchfork. Um, I bring a lot of interviews to the podcast, but um, of all the interviews I've brought to the podcast, to be 100% honest, this is uh, top five, not five, maybe top two, not two. Um, and it's just a really unbelievably composed uh, interview and maybe my favorite of 2020. Um, so the uh, initial kind of first paragraph of the article really does something interesting that I haven't seen quite done this well before. Um, she uh, starts with a, an initial story to draw the reader in about Mustafa, the poet, who we're talking about as the artist from Toronto, his first arrest Um in Toronto and how he told a rival to his crew uh, when they were locked up to uh, he asked them if they would play charades with the crew to kind of ease the tension and there was like a little bit of banter back and forth and a joke and it worked Um, and that just kind of quick little tidbit and pull quote story uh, that she told um, it just really gives, gives an overall sense of who Mustafa is on a life philosophy level as well as on a personal level and um it just gets further expanded upon throughout the piece um and the thing that's so interesting about it is to me that's 
use she used a uh, used storytelling specifically as like a thesis to a piece, um, which is something that I I I have seen maybe a little bit before, but not quite as effectively. Um, rather than obviously the kind of standard like this is this is what I'm going to be talking about thesis. It's it becomes a little bit more like I'm just going to use the story and the feeling behind the story to exude what I'm going to talk about for the rest of this, which actually has a cool kind of direct parallel to how Mustafa creates his music. Um, so yeah, so the first line though, that, that she wrote that specifically really grabbed me post the story still in the intro, um, is she said uh, about Mustafa's upcoming record, uh, when smoke rises, which is going to be his first debut kind of full project. The record's most striking moments often take the form of simple, unanswerable questions. So she introduces this theme, then uses the transcription to further expand upon, upon how this is inherent to his musical expression. Mustafa does not intend to teach through his music, but more ponder upon life happenings and express the emotional reactions to that. He doesn't feel comfortable saying he knows how to deal with something or how anyone else should, especially in association with something like grief. Um, and again, this all goes back to the title, Meditative Songs of Mourning. Um, so then Kamir goes further into that idea when writing about he, how he's uncomfortable with how society says men should react to grief. Um, and then she says this line, a choice to honor pain rather than pave it over with destructive armor as men are taught to do. Uh, so again, here, a choice of commemorating and reflecting rather than problem solving or feeling like, you know, what the right thing to do is. Um, I, I just thought this was a really, really, uh, unique progression of storytelling in her own right of, of who she believes Mustafa is and what his music is and does. Um, so yeah, so the my favorite um, kind of part of the piece is that this kind of last section right before she goes into this transcription um, where she has this unbelievable pull quote from Mustafa himself um, as he's kind of describing um, the album and his music in general and kind of what he puts out into the world um, because it, it really sums everything up and the imagery in it is so specific and different. Um, so what he says is smoke rises in such a gentle way, unlike how relentless and horrifying a fire can be. That's what Smokey's memory was for me. So, uh, to give a little bit of context, first of all, it's a fire sentence. I see Tyler making no, it's face. like, it's Mickey um, always steals all my quotables every single time. Every time. <laughs> right. That's a common theme on the podcast of all of us stealing <sighs> each other's quotes. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so, uh, Smokey is referencing Smoke Dog, who is a friend of, uh, Mustafa, who he's referencing is, and the album is a little bit of an ode to him and other friends of Mustafa's that he's lost. Um, and that imagery of, uh, his expression or his music kind of representing the smoke around the fire, um, really carries through throughout the piece and becomes another part of this whole thesis idea that Kamir, um, introduces, um, but it's just so specific um, to what what he feels comfortable with expressing through his music and what he feels like is the most poignant um, is is not honing in on this kind of like intensified fire, but kind of the effect, the after effect of it and what surrounds it and giving a more, um, as we'll describe later, a whole perspective um, of people and of events that cause things like grief and mourning. Um, so then I'll just say one thing about her line of questioning that I thought was really impressive. Um, and then we'll get into some quotes that I'm sure you all have and, and thoughts about the piece overall. So the thing that was really impressive to me about Kamir's line of question and answer, um, is her questions are really short first and foremost, but also well-constructed. And what she does that really sets her interview style apart to me is through the way that she's asking her questions, we get an equal parts amount of, um, I have a, a specific story arc that I'm trying to, to give this interview and I, I know exactly where I wanna place things, but I'm also inherently listening to everything Mustafa is saying and being entirely on the cuff, even though I have a full idea of where I wanna go with this. So it just gives this tone of the overall interview to be so naturalistic and to me, one of the better examples of kind of translating the transcription style to feel the most like you're just ha you're listening or watching a conversation between a journalist and an artist. Um, I think that was really cool. And then 
so this is a metaphor that uh, just kind of came to me while I was reading it. Um, it it's similar kind of, and Tyler will, will react to this, is just because I talked about kind of a metaphor that came to me with the Danielle Smith piece we talked about, um, about Sade, where it felt like she was kind of weaving a quilt with different fabrics that were like different memories from her life. Uh, this one felt very much like eating an artichoke. So you take off kind of the pieces and kind of take a taste of them as you're going through her transcription. And then at the end, you kind of get to the heart of everything that represents Mustafa. Um, and that came into uh, this, uh, this just kind of idea. It's very quick, just how what he tries to express is a more holistic peep, uh, picture of the people he sings about. He meditates on the morning in pain, but will not let himself or his community be defined by it, which again goes back to the smoke metaphor, um, which I thought, yeah, that was just the heart of the artichoke. Um, and yeah, it's just one of the better interviews I've ever read. So what did you guys think? I thought it was brilliant. Um, I thought this piece was... It's, when I first started reading it, I kind of forgot it was an interview because it re almost started reading like a profile at first. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and so when we got to the, the question, um, uh, the question and answer part, I was like, oh, shoot, this is a, a straightforward interview because it was because it, it was so detailed in like the precursor to the questioning. I was like, oh, I'm just reading it. And something that was really well done on their part as the or as the journalist is as you're taking apart Mustafa's like being or persona it seems very hopeless at first very hopeless someone who's almost like given up on all things but it's the but it's like you said that first opening light paragraph and then the last answer that he gave that you're they're like oh even in the midst of like this hopelessness that has run around him in Regent Park he's actually still has that core of hope he's he wouldn't be doing anything else if um if it wasn't for hope and one of my favorite quotes um from them which you didn't steal hooray um <laughs> by dint of his visibility and diplomatic charm he became the kind of guy who knew which grants would yield the most resources how to scrounge up airfare when someone needed to fly home for a parent's funeral and went to show up for friends and neighbors who could use an advocate in interactions with institutions. He's constantly advocating. He's been like, he's been this way before the music, before the poetry, it's been ingrained in him and now he's just doing it. And something that was also like really good about this interview is just the nuggets of quotables uh, that Mustafa gave her. It was I almost like sometimes I felt like tearing up at times. So I was like, I was like, oh, pain. Oh, pain through words. This is my least favorite kind of pain, but it worked really well for the article. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, that first quote that you just said, uh, it, it really kind of brings back a, a theme that I felt throughout is um, Mustafa really, really is uh, an incredible and why his music cuts through is he's incredibly honest with himself, which is, you know, more difficult task for for any human so he you see him kind of trying and failing in different ways to kind of interact until he finds what feels right to him and where he feels like he can be useful and i feel like ruaya kamir really uh was able to capture that overall throughout the arc of the piece what did you think Joshima? i think that she did something that is inherently exceedingly difficult when you're profiling this type of artist and doing an interview, which is to take so many dense intersectional parts of their life, I'll bet how young he is, and make them tie into the story-like narrative where you're watching it and it makes sense chronologically, but you're also hopping around, but it's also really artistic. So I thought that part was awesome. And I'm always, um, and it might be because when you're constantly trying to get representation for underrepresented communities the way in which she talks about what islam means to him and mm. what his community is like as an east african it it sheds a light on a narrative that no one really talks about which is what it's like to be not black or white um or what it's like to be in communities that are third culture in these pocket metropolitan cities and what that does to you so i thought that was really 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 beautifully done and it's a very hard thing to do but one of my favorite parts is actually before the interview where 
She says, Mustafa's plea for the preservation of life in his neighborhood centers on radical love as the antidote to violence. I care about you, fam, he sings, gently and pointedly. His voice and writing betray an intentional softness, a choice to honor pain rather than pave it over with destructive armor, as men are taught to do. I've never read a sentence that felt more encompassing of the last two years of the growth of people around Mustafa's age in North American countries, but also around the world, right? The amount of things we're constantly unlearning as music and art portray a lot of what it is to grow up in communities like his, but also a lot of what it is to like shed some toxic masculinity that's taught to everyone and create space for feeling and softness and kindness in music in a genre that doesn't endorse that type of energy especially for men totally and then she really expanded upon that that leads really well into a quote that i wanted to talk about specifically uh she really gets into expand upon that idea very much in the interview um and one of the the more interesting kind of quotes from mustafa i thought which would definitely by the twitter world be taken as a bit of a hot take um but he says i'm not speak i I'm not speaking to a community. I'm exploring my emotions, being a person that's of them. A lot of artists find themselves trying to educate, and that's why I've always appreciated gangster rap so much. Like, I've never listened to J. Cole in my life. I just could never get into it, all the backpack rap culture. I was never a fan of that. If I'm trying to learn, I'll just read something. I don't want to hear someone talk about black theorists on a song. That's such a crazy thing to do. Um... Yeah, I, I mean, that. first of all, that's like a really, really hot take about J. Cole's music, a lot of people will think, but I think um, it's not as much about that. It's more about the core of, of, of you know, taking away what, what he views as like, kind of like, I need to, I'm going to use this platform of music to be like a teacher to y'all and tell you how you're supposed to do stuff. Um, and uh, that just doesn't feel natural to Mustafa and it kind of, you know, naturally deflects the, the, the kind of ideas of toxic masculinity. Um, that, that he he doesn't feel comfortable with. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting quote that she was able to garner. And I, I agree completely. I, I, I thought that was like, because it's something that I, um, that I related back to is like how usually artists, you because you would almost view uh, Mustafa as like, oh, a conscious artist, right? Big air quotes. And I find how like a lot of people that and that like they don't listen to that other type of music. They're like, I don't want to. While I'm being the guy that's navigating through emotions, I don't want to hear that type of music. I'd rather like listen to music that is also reflecting the reality that I'm in, that I'm trying to speak to. Um, I thought that was really dope. Um, another quotable that I really enjoyed. It was just a simple sentence. To this day, when there are people gathered to serve me or something that I'm doing. I feel this imposter syndrome because and I'm glad I'm, I'm glad he almost said it because like throughout the whole entire piece, I felt like he was struggling with that. The survivors, survivors remorse, um, imposter syndrome, because he's like trying to navigate himself from Regent Park. This was one kid from Regent Park into these spaces where he has to almost speak for everyone and almost feeling like he's underqualified. But like he's like how his friends was like. His friends just put his like his friends were like, I'm, I'm we're going to put you on platforms and he's going to speak. And he's like, I don't I'm not sure if I'm that person to speak. And but everyone else around him can recognize that. Right. And he has these moments also just that leads into another quote that I definitely wanted to talk about, which is another <laughs> a little bit of a hot take. But how he, you know. It, especially because he kind of he's definitely a separatist, like removes himself and then goes into these other head spaces uh, and then kind of brings us it back to people who are really, you know, still there and on the ground and doing stuff. And then he, um, but he's still deeply connected with them. So he has this quote about reading Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates that I thought was really interesting. Uh, so he said, I love Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates, but I'm like, this is the kind of kid that we didn't, that, but I'm like, this is the kind of kid that didn't leave his crib like that. I remember reading a page to one of my boys and he was like, nah, this kid sounds like a goof, man. He ain't really out here. His voice didn't leave me for the rest of the book. Um, yeah, so, you know, like any time that he's kind of tried to navigate into that space, he's always felt like, you know, <laughs> it doesn't feel right to him exactly to be in that space because of the, you know, the reality and the kind of cutting through those those types of expressions that the people um, who he grew up with and who he's still connected to feel about those types of kind of, uh, of analysis. I think something that I thought was one of my favorite and also the most heartbreaking parts of this piece was when he talks about um, burying and washing the body of his friend. And I think after that, he, he says something to the effect of, 
Sam, I don't want to play activist. And he was like, if you don't speak, who's going to speak? And the first thing I thought was the publication that shook him in his life now shook him in his death. And that gave me such intense chills to read. And I had to read it like several times because it's such a testament to when we write about people, how unimportant we think that might be. I think earlier this week on Clubhouse, we had that conversation about like, does editorial actually really even matter? Or are we all these people that are so obsessed and tied to this art form that we keep trying to keep it alive? But when you read things like that, you become so aware of how for a lot of us, there are days where it might just feel like you're covering something or you're reviewing something, or you're talking about something, or you're generating a headline, and that's someone's life. That's someone's life that we're portraying, whether it's to two other people, or 200,000 other people, or two million people, but it's, it's humans we're talking about. And I think this interview did what very few interviews do, and gave space for someone's very, very human feelings, and very, very human experiences, despite it being lengthy, despite it being extremely nuanced, despite it being intersectional, And I think, like, this gives me hope and meaning that maybe we can understand artists to be more than just activists or gangster rappers or these different sort of identities that they get forced to hold because no one's really describing the in-between. Yeah, definitely. And that that also goes into the kind of the, the natural progression of him finding the type of genre that really worked for his expression um, and, and finding folk music as being the kind of the way to express himself that is not in the regular trajectory as well. Um, I thought that part was also really interesting. Yeah. Uh, one, one, I think it also like, and that also gave way to like the last thing he almost likes, or one of the last th- few things he said in the interview. I love being someone completely different to just be a person. And having, because he said he's like, when he's in LA, he doesn't talk about any of that stuff from back home. He's like I he's like I just want, he's like he loves being someone completely new to to all these groups of people. He doesn't have to like worry about the almost like depressive almost like anchor of his home. And he loves his home. He like he was um, matter of fact he was there when they were doing the interview over the summer, but he, he you can definitely tell a piece of his heart is forever just just sold to it. A part of his heart is forever sold to it. Yeah, I think that's a good way to end this one, Tyler. Uh, I think, yeah, just shout outs again to Rawai Kamir for really, um, as Jeshima was kind of talking about, really, you know, digging into the, the, the whole human that is Mustafa the poet and giving us a real rounded view of him and his music. Um, yeah, this is really dope. So, uh, Tyler, do you want to go ahead and intro and get into your piece? Yes, uh, I chose the piece Van Jess Perfected Their Own R&B Sound on their Homegrown EP by Sri Rain Stewart. I hope I said that correctly. Did, did I say that correctly? I hope I did. Um, you tell me, boss. God. <laughs> um, <laughs> but something that I've found, something about the piece, it was like almost at first... A very like almost like standard interview piece has its intro and that's getting into like their background. But something that I really appreciate appreciate about this interview is conversation. I love where like the line of questioning doesn't feel like it's like, oh, they're like it's they're sitting down, they're almost trying to point them at questions. It's, it feels very conversational. You s- saw that in Stewart's like almost longer sets of questions. It's not just a simple question and they just move on. They let them speak. Um, like Van Jess themselves let Stuart speak and Stuart let them like have huge chunks of just being like, this, this was our top, favorite type of music. This is what got us here. And something that I got from their process is honesty. They don't ever want to force anything. They want to have the epitome of being homegrown. The fact that a lot of these songs are from twenty or not a lot, but like at least two or three were from like twenty sixteen that are just now seeing the light of day, that even they themselves weren't sure about, and it it, it says a lot how like everything has its time, and part of being homegrown is that it has its time. Yeah, I uh, my first note that I had about it was also in the, that kind of line of thinking was, um, I just really like how they talk specifically not just about it being homegrown, but it, 
talk about it with a sense of like experimentation is kind of a necessity to really find what they feel like wholeheartedly in the end will be the piece of art that they want to present to the world. That it can't just be in, in their minds, it, it has to be something where they kind of really mess around with different ways to express it before they can even feel comfortable with actually, you know, putting it on streaming services and getting feedback. Um, and I, I think that that um, really comes through in Van Jess's sound wholeheartedly because it, it feels like they put the time in to find how their pocket would feel the most authentic to them, but also at least slightly different than each kind of style of music that may feel similar to theirs. Um, and I think that's really exuded on a couple of those tracks on, on the album wholeheartedly, specifically the Catronata produced one, I think is they really dysfunctional cool pocket on that one. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Joshua, what'd you think? I actually am a big fan of Shree. So I thought that was cool, but I think it's also exciting to hear um, duos being making like a comeback. This identity of duos and bands and groups are sort of resurfacing, and it, it's weird. But like when you love music, I think people often forget about like the composition and instrumentality that lives in a good song. And so I think Van Jess, I hadn't listened to them before this, but I became such a fan of the way pieces come together for them because it's so different and it, it's there's so much musicality there that goes beyond just the two of them um and so i thought that was really really exciting mm. yeah that uh that at least is definitely the thing i wanted to make sure i talked about which was a really uh astute uh i, I love doing this in my own pieces but uh placing in what the sample was for slow down which is my favorite song on the project um and uh just talking about that it was specifically uh, Lafayette Afro rock band's dark, darkest light felt because then I could look that up on who sampled and see who else did it. <laughs> um, and, and then I realized, oh, this is where I've heard it before, which is Show Me What You Got by Jay-Z also used that same sample. And it really showed how they um, reinterpret it or whoever produced it plus Van Jess because it seems like they are very collaborative, which was shown by um, the way the piece was written as well and the, the way they answered the questions. Um, really reinterpreted how to use that sample in their own way um, and reinvent that reinvent not just themselves but the the existence of that sample in in music um, but then the funny thing that I also didn't realize once you know because because Shri kind of put that in the piece is that that sample is also used in rump shaker by Rex in effect <laughs> <laughs> which <laughs> I uh, then re-listened to that and was like, oh, so I've definitely heard it there too. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny because on some way, you know, obviously Rump Shaker is more of a dance song and Show Me What You Got is like a flex rap song really. So it's kind of like they, they kind of hit the middle ground of those two and then reinterpreted it in their own um, almost like indie pop style, indie pop R&B style version after they kind of hit that middle ground between those two versions of the sample. Um, but it just goes, you know, making sure, you know, as writers, we include what the sample is and where it comes from to get the roots of making the track. Also, it just gives, just even mentioning it gives insight into the, the artistic process, I think, in a really cool way. Yeah. I mean, part of being homegrown is like making something from scratch and knowing where like everything comes from. So like the fact that like, this article even like says like where the original sample is, where it went to, and now it's being interpreted now, I think is part of that. Um, and it's it's so crazy like hearing Van Jess now, because I remember I was I, I was on YouTube and I found them for the first time with a cover of Kendrick Lamar's and Flying Lotus's Never Catch Me. And how yeah, and how they interpreted that song and how they interpreted like these new sounds as well. I thought that I was like, oh, full circle. Look, look at that. It's all, all coming together because other whole entire bass is homegrown. The fact that they've recorded most of this album at home, doing the vocals or even like finishing parts of songs at home. It just shows how at the root of everything, they need to be comfortable in whatever space they're um, creating in. It's yeah. Well, it also shows that. Yeah, it yeah. also shows that they're they're a product of now, you know, um, I mean, it, 
<laughs> even the biggest artists in the world are some level doing a lot of their recording in some version of home studios because it just kind of makes more sense with where the technology has gone has gone and then also um van jess's kind of understanding that they they need to find where their pocket is is kind of a representation of the natural fusion of the genres so music is kind of almost at the end of the day genreless in modern times where it was much more defined at the kind of you know beginning stages of certain genres um so i think yeah i think that that uh, shri did a really good job of kind of honing in on that and that the album really represents that too. yeah i think i was listening to something the other day and it was a little bit about entrepreneurship and how we encourage this culture of specificity and always having like be really good at one thing don't be a jack of all trades and be a master of none all these different things and um, I, I forgot what I'm referencing, but they went on to say that what if the specialization and the specificity was just being an entrepreneur? What if that was the skill and you didn't have to have industry specificity or product specificity? And I completely related that to music immediately. And then when I read this piece, I was like, this is that. They don't have to choose if they are Aaliyah-esque one day and then Ravina Aurora-esque the next day. They get to be all of those things. They get to take from Whitney and they get to take from Jimi Hendrix if they feel like it. And that amalgamation, I think, is really representative of people in this age range right now. It's the, um, it is an amalgamation of all of these different pop cultural references. But I think it also speaks to like an originalist at heart really loving that these sounds and this type of energy is cascading into the new wave but it's also a completely new take on it and i think that that's really really awesome you don't hear about artists referencing so specifically the types of sounds and individuals from different eras that influence their work because they're so afraid of being uh, genre box or associated and compared to them but i think in this light it's more of a quite literally this is what we were bred from and this is what we're creating and that's really really fucking cool <laughs> yeah it is word yeah let's end on that that was I think a really good <laughs> way to sum up that that piece um, Josh and kind of a weirdly always. good yeah kind of weirdly good transition into your piece I think Josh Yeah, why don't you introduce yours and we'll talk about that. Yes, Quest Love Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. Um, This has obviously been all over headlines the last few weeks, as it should be, but I think this came at such an incredibly fitting time because it really put the onus on mainstream media to give due diligence to something that was already robbed of its documentation once. Right. So this became the time where all eyes were really on a artistry, B film, C television, but also how people chose to cover this. Right. And um, to some degree, maybe we can get into this on another episode after the film is public for public consumption. But, you know, we talk a lot about had it not been acquired for X amount of dollars, would we still be talking about it the same way? How many times are publications covering it? And so today was a little bit less about um, it necessarily being an exceptionally well-written piece, but more so about the fact that I kept seeing repeat coverage from incredible publications. I kept seeing mainstream outlets citing Essence and other outlets. And that's beautiful because that shows real progress. But I'm curious to hear everyone's take on if they knew about the festival before this if they've seen it, what they've heard about it, what they thought. And I think that that's an earnest question, right? Because I certainly two years ago did not know about the festival. Oh, not at all. I I learned about it with this piece. It was like a nice little history lesson for me. Um, Because like like the article points out, around that time, and the only thing I knew of was Woodstock. Of course, I'm not alive during this time, but like what everyone was talking about, like what my dad would talk about, or like uh, any of my aunts or uncles, they're all like, oh yeah, Woodstock. That's all we know about. Granted, we're from the South. Um, we're, we're from all Texas, uh, homegrown and everything of that nature. But this was like a nice thing to learn about. Oh, I mean, I was fully yesterday years old when I found out about this <laughs> festival from reading this piece, like wholeheartedly. And it, it's it's absurd, particularly the thing that was the most absurd about not knowing this festival is is two things the actual amount of people that were there and then the second biggest thing is the fucking lineup literally stevie wonder was at the festival and bb king so 
that I mean, that's really absurd, especially, and here's the thing that's the most absurd to me. So Woodstock is obviously during that time, right? And Woodstock definitely was a cultural phenomenon because of like the amount of people that went and the kind of like struggle it was to get them even into the festival and all of the various assortment of things. But I've literally seen a documentary on other festivals during that time that were not Woodstock that have already gotten coverage before this festival. Like that Monterey Festival where Jimi Hendrix, I think, lit his car- guitar on fire, that has multiple documentaries already. So it's like this this time period, musically, is one of the most covered time periods in music that I think is even in existence because it all kind of stems out from Woodstock. And the fact that it literally took until 2021 to have this festival of such a massive scale and done so close to the, the actual location of Woodstock to be covered is absurd. Yeah. So shouts to Questlove for sure for I mean, making it the happen. The whole team, Questlove, Joseph Patel is a filmmaker and they've been doing work together for probably longer than all of us have been alive. Um, but I do think, awesome. you know, something that really hit was like, I think it's the second or third paragraph, maybe the second one. But how, how did I not know who Tony Lawrence was? How do you do something with the New York City Parks Department after an assassination of a global visionary, during a heroin pandemic, have the help of the Black Panthers, have the support of the mayor, and no one talks about it. And I think that that for me was such a testament to the fact that as young people are understanding and unpacking the histories of different countries and communities and learning the other side of what we're not taught, how real eradication is if no one's paying attention. Right, and how important documentation is if no one's paying attention, irrespective of the fact that truths are subjective at large, in my opinion. But if these people weren't there, if they didn't know, if they didn't know someone who knew, if they didn't know where to find this footage, if Amir didn't care about this, then would this just have eradicated one of the most beautiful parts of Black American history? I mean, I think just with what you said, you got really to the core of the answer for why this was kind of, you know, swept under the rug in in its existence. I mean, you know, this is not the only reason, but so much of the the history and the reality of the institution of the Black Panthers is erased historically, especially kind of taught to us growing up and like, you know, the things that the Black Panthers did, which is, you know you know get you know providing free food to underserved communities and things like that and 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 school lunches and things um it's there's there's so much of that history that specifically and you know the story of fred hampton which is now being documented in a feature film upcoming as well um and the you know the involvement of the fbi in his assassination um so i you know when i read that part of this article too i was like I I absolutely am sure on some level the reason a part of the reason that we don't know about this festival is because of the ties of the Black Panthers involved with you know first of all keeping people safe at the festival directly from the police um so yeah yeah I think that that definitely is a part and of I it. think the part that really really stood out to me is the fact that the Harlem Cultural Festival was not just a day or a concert or three hours, six weeks of programming with some of the greatest singers of all time with little to no resources. And during a time where quite literally that must have been the scariest thing in the world to do after fighting for your existence. Yeah, it was, It's and it wasn't this just, a, it wasn't the first year that they did it. It was like, uh, they have been doing it for multiple years. And this, this year in particular was one of the most important. And to the point of, Blackness being swept under the rug to give mainstream or let me see the larger white audience at whole a place to shine while blackness is in the shadows just is just historical at this point. Um, it's in, and the Black Panthers not only brought brought food, they brought educate. They had education. They Fred Hampton would teach classes to young children. Um, so many aspects of like the good that they did is pushed to the side for the terror that it caused white hearts or just government and how they perceived that and how they made sure it was seen through everyone else for decades. Like when people, uh, it's been said like, oh, people are uh, just now getting hip to the fact that it was the FBI, right? Which that is a wonderful thing. But if you ask black people in their communities, it's something we've known for a long time. It's something that my father told me, something my grandfather told me. Um, who didn't even completely agree with everything they did. And and I'm like, and as someone who's like more on the radical side of things, that's and sees that and hears that and it's like, well, I'm glad I'm glad it's finally here. I'm glad it's finally here. I'm glad these black spaces are now 
coming from out of the shadows to finally take that shine that was lost from them a long time ago. And you know, what you said speaks to something that happens around the world to communities that are marginalized in that often we're constantly saying, at large, it makes sense, but two people did something we don't agree with, or one person did something we don't agree with, right? Like right now we see it with the narrative surrounding the farmers' protests in India in that it's like five out of 300,000 protesters, arbitrary numbers, um, go and do something violent. Therefore, an entire three months of peaceful protesting is eradicated. And people use that to eradicate entire peoples and their culture and their movement and their contributions to society. And that to me is insane. And, you know, but it's not right. It's, it's like what Tyler just said, where this is, this is commonplace. And it's such a beautiful thing that a, like a largely black and people of color crew made this film that entertainers who have been part of the industry for God knows how many years and made countless cultural contributions did this because nobody else will write anyone else's history, right? And so I think that that was magical because we're getting to see it through someone who essentially got to be around people that lived it as opposed to somebody else co-opting their narrative and trying to then paint that picture out for the world because it makes sense or it's culturally relevant all of a sudden. but I mean, at Sundance, it won the Grand Jury Prize and the Audience Award, which is wild. Gang, gang. Uh, I, I, love, I love seeing that. It's because the ability for people, not, uh, impoverished people everywhere, but it, specifically as a Black person in hearing this, it's the, our ability to make our Blackness shine and be happy enjoying ourselves because like they said it was coming off the decade of so many of our leaders and just people that supported our cause dying finding joy in the midst of death or after death was so key to me and how this and and like as you were saying joshua the fact that it was the fact those people were still alive to tell those stories and the fact that it was also recorded the fact that they had some footage or anything to be to either orally or and visually tell these stories because without it, it would be lost. There's a quote from um, a, d- a different piece. It's it's a piece in Variety, but Tara Duncan is the lead for Searchlight Pictures and Disney's BIPOC Creator Initiative. But she said it's rare to find a film that captures the breath of the American, the Black American experience, and also makes you want to dance, testify, and sing out loud. Amir has gifted us with a brilliantly crafted, nearly forgotten gem from our history, and we are honored to help bring Summer of Soul to audiences. But the part where she talks about the fact that it's rare to find a film that captures the breath of the Black American experience and also makes you want to dance, testify, and sing out loud was a really bittersweet thing to read because how sad is it that it's rare to find a community experiencing joy? Well, I think that goes back to all the other stuff you were saying is probably a huge part of that reality is, you know, black artists not being given enough opportunities to share the entire human breath and and kind of just to go back to the Mustafa the poet, the holistic approach to these kinds of stories, because probably more likely than not, if um, the opportunities were given, we would get much more work that 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 is able to to create such a holistic piece of art like this, like Questlove was able to, for sure. Yeah, I think I think a good chunk of it is also acknowledging that when we only present peoples in their peril, we make it very hard for the world to see them outside of that. I've probably referenced um, this example before, but we were at the United Nations for Day of the Girl like two years ago now, I think. I don't know what year it is in pandemic life, but there was a white female documentary filmmaker there, and, and she, she said one of the greatest atrocities she made towards Black American south asian and african communities was constantly making films about their peril about girls in india getting raped and people in africa being diseased because that became how the world would see them and that became what was getting millions and billions of views and circulating the world as award-winning film and she was like i dehumanized an entire people because i didn't show the world that they were something beyond what the white lens of the world has taught is savagery or poverty or what have you. And, you know, that happens in music and entertainment all the time. Yeah. Tyler, want any, any closing, closing thoughts on, on this piece? 
Um, on this piece, I'm just happy to see blackness still find its place even decades later. That as long as we make sure we still write, we still record, and we still tell these stories, literary literary wise or orally, we will we will be here to last. Maybe we'll do Max. a central sauce cool. watch party of the film. Oh, yes, no, I definitely have to watch it. Sit for I, real. Yeah, I'm, yeah, this piece really made me very excited to watch it wholeheartedly. Um, yeah, and you can even hear that. I felt like you could really hear that, um, even though it was very much like I, I'm reporting a story. You could still, even in the language from Aramide Tanubu, like feel the the real urgency and pride in the film uh, behind behind the words. Um, so yeah, so shout outs again to Aramide Tanubu and Essence for their piece Quest Love Summer of Soul or When the Re- Revolution Could Not Be Televised Unearths the Crowning Jewel in Black History. Um, to Shri Rain Stewart and her piece for OK Player, Van Jess perfected their own R&B sound on the homegrown EP. And then uh, again, shouts to Ruwaya Kamir and Pitchfork for the piece Mustafa's Meditative Songs of Mourning. Um, thank you everyone for listening to our podcast again and forever. Uh, we really appreciate you. Please uh, subscribe to Central Sauce so you can receive uh, updates and newsletters. Um, subscribe to the podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, please feel free to leave us a review if you like what you heard. Please share our podcast with friends, family, etc. Um, and if you are an independent journalist, especially those writing for smaller publications who uh, would like us to read your pieces and potentially um, talk about them on the podcast please uh, feel free to dm or email uh, any of us involved with the podcast and we'd be glad to give your piece a read and would love to highlight it um so yeah any any other closing thoughts by you joshima or tyler no uh, joshima go first <laughs> i just think today's pieces are a really strong reminder that we quite literally can write ourselves into the worlds we live and the lives we live and if we just commit to that type of consistency then Maybe we can stop accepting cultures and coloring in lines that someone else drew for us. I love when the podcast kind of creates its own natural theme uh, and through line, <laughs> which happens more often than not. It's really, really kind of a cool kismet energy thing that happens. Kismet. Yeah, piggy, piggyback on that for sure. Kismet. Say Tyler, it with me, Mickey. Kismet. Kiss, kiss, kismet. Kismet. That's how that's kismet. how it's pronounced. There's no pundits and no kismet. It's kismet and pundit. Gotcha. <laughs> Heard that. And uh, I guess last statement for me, by the way, is um, it's Black History Month. Um, celebrate you and every single way you can. Burn bright, burn black, and don't let anyone dim your shine. Thank you for listening, everyone. Thanks, y'all. This episode of In Search of Source featured Josh Marauder, Mickey Hellerback, and Tyler Jones of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode was edited by me, Chai Taylor, the Fifth and Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked up by Basti. Thanks to Chill Breakers for the busy use. This has been a Central Source for Fifth and Podcast Network production. Thanks to Basti, Chill Breakers, Central Source, Fifth Element, and content covered in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.